Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking heart-shaped boxes, we're talking spin-dry Mabel, and we're talking moose-head beer. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking a boiling pot full of wieners. Wow. The queerest of content in this movie, right? 100%. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking George Mahalka's classic now uh, 1981 slasher film, My Bloody Valentine, in anticipation of, you guessed it, Valentine's Day. Never heard of it. I know, yeah. <laughs> we'll see how many other podcasts are covering this movie this week. It's either going to be this movie or the remake or Valentine. Valentine. Yeah. <laughs> and we're doing two out of three this month because we've already done Valentine on the Patreon. Correct. <laughs> you might hate me, Joe. I, I think this original movie is fine. I think it's aggressively fine. I don't hold it in as high a regard as you or Quentin Tarantino, who has gone on to say that this is his favorite slasher movie of all time. <laughs> I like it. I don't love it. Yeah, you know what? That's fair. Uh, off air, we had talked about how I think this is a similar kind of film to April Fool's Day, where it's just a little bit different from your conventional slasher film. And I appreciate if you start to dig into the logistics of this, these murders don't make any fucking sense. But I think for me, it's that these characters are fun and relatable. They feel more authentic than some of the more hammy, tropey characters that you start to get in, particularly the second era of slashers in the 90s and aughts. No, I don't disagree with you. My actu- my issue actually is with the characters. So this movie does get a lot of praise for featuring um, adults. And it's a more (laughs) mature slasher is a term I've seen thrown around because it's not dealing with typical teenagers doing their teenager-y things. Mm -hmm. They're not even college students in this. They're fully adults working in this goddamn mine. And I do like that in theory. My issue is, hey, if you're not taking notes on this movie for a podcast, if you could tell me any of these characters' names outside of Sarah Axel and TJ before, (laughs) like, the climax of this film, I would be shocked. (laughs) <laughs> I will not disagree with most of the supporting cast, except that I cannot believe you are showing this level of disdain to my man Hollis, aka the slightly larger gentleman with the glasses. He is my favorite. He's one of my favorite slasher characters. Really? Okay, I mean, and th- that's not an insult to be like, really, you're an idiot. Why would you think that? But I'm genuinely asking, why? Outside of the fact that I do appreciate that he goes back to, like, save his friends in the mines, Mm -hmm. I don't understand what's memorable about this character. I just think he's the kind of character that you don't normally see in these movies, because you would normally get a, like, a Randy or a Kirby in this kind of role, right? And instead, he's so fun and lovable and schlubby, like... I don't know, he feels like a real person to me in all of the right ways. I find him endlessly charming. You know what, I'll give that to you. I don't find him unlikable. Like I just don't find him as charming as you do. I will say he probably gets the meanest death in the film. And, and oh, yeah. granted, 
a film full of very mean and painful deaths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the biggest struggles that people have with this film in particular is that it's not just that you don't know who these secondary characters are, it's that they just randomly pop up. And I don't know if it's something to do with like the production and who they could get on set and maybe not everybody could be there the whole time, but there's definitely too many characters. And as a result, you want to spend more time with some of these people, but constantly getting introduced to new people. Right. And that's why I feel like, you know, we get the scene kind of early on where it's all of them setting up the dance. And I and that's really the only establishing scene we have for a lot, specifically like Sylvia and John and Michael yeah. and whatever the fuck her name is. Who Harriet. Gets yeah. Harriet. Yeah. Like, I mean, I literally when I was watching this, there's a scene early on when Sarah is walking with Patty down the street and I had to like write in my notes. I was like, OK, Patty is the brunette that has this blue stocking hat on. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know who these people are. No, yeah, and they do all just look a little too similar. I'm not gonna lie, I do blame this a little bit on uh, some local Canadian casting, because, (laughs) I mean, I get the impression not all of these people were let's say, professionally trained actors. Yeah, I mean, it's all a bit melodramatic. There are some line deliveries that are quite entertaining, but not in the way they're probably intended to be. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of a thing I have with just a lot of those early 80s slashers. Like, this is coming out less than a year after the original Friday the 13th. It's just shy of Friday the 13th Part 2. There's really something about a lot of these movies that... I'm going to get flack for this. They're kind of boring. There's not a lot here that, I mean, I know it's a kind of the blueprint for what the slasher genre would become and it, right. you know, it became so stale after a while. I think that's why I gravitated towards franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street of this time period, because it was doing something different outside of, oh, here's a bunch of characters that I don't find particularly interesting and let's kill them in a bunch of ways. And we right. haven't really reached a period of mainstream slashers that are super, super gory. Again, maybe people are yelling at me right now saying this. (laughs) Well, and we'll talk a little bit more about the gore when we get into the production of this particular film. But yeah, you're you're right. I mean, the big hook for this film is that it's got a memorable killer who unfortunately Mm -hmm. never really gets his due. Like the suit looks great, but Harry Warden doesn't become an iconic serial killer like slasher villain. And then also, yeah, it's a Valentine's Day themed film. That's what you're getting with this film. It's not going for much more ingenuity than that. Granted, and I'll get fucking raked over the coals for this. (laughs) Do I think this is a better movie than the original Friday the 13th? Absolutely. Absolutely do. Yes. I mean, it's better made for sure. It is better made. (laughs) And I mean, that movie is really boring, but that's a discussion for another time. It's true. (laughs) We actually have a whole Patreon episode if people want to hear our thoughts on why that original Friday the 13th is okay. Um, before I go into the production of this film, um, because everyone, the Screen Factory Blue for this, we're not getting paid, unfortunately, but the Screen Factory Blue for this is stacked. Holy God. If you're going to buy a Scream Factory Blue, it's like, what, this one and Valentine is probably, like, the really, really good ones, right? yeah, Valentine actually has a really good Scream Factory Blue. It's kind of insane. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So clearly Scream Factory loves them, the Holiday of Hearts. Yeah, yeah, they do. I will give this movie this, though. I think that the final shot of this movie and the audio of, um, spoiler alert, Axel running away into the mines is genuinely terrifying. I think it's It's really creepy creepy. as he's singing the I remember the first time I saw this, I was just like, I was chilling. I don't find this movie particularly scary. I think there's a few effective parts in it in terms Mm -hmm. of like thrills. But the ending of this movie does leave me like quite scared. 
Yeah, even just the image of him sawing at the hand and mm-hmm. then her pulling it out. Oh, yeah, it's upsetting. Well, I mean, kind of the way, too, because like he's, like, skipping along through the mines, like, never uh, to return. Or, I'm sorry, one day to return. <laughs> singing that lullaby, threatening. Yeah, yeah it's, it's good. Good stuff. So, okay, let's talk about My Bloody Valentine, everybody. So, um, as I said, the film is directed by George Mahaka. So, <laughs> this is saying on the strength of his earlier movie, Pickup Summer. Now, Pickup Summer actually came out two months after this movie. So, I wonder if it was made beforehand and the studio had seen it. But he was approached by Cinepix Productions with a two-movie contract. And what I love is he was asked to direct a horror slasher story presented to the producers by Stephen Miller in mid-1980. So this would have been, I mean, I'm, I'm betting you like right after Friday the 13th came out. Because I think Friday the 13th was May of 80. But anyway, so he agreed to direct it. Um, John Beard was brought in to write the screenplay. And the original title for this film was The Secret. But producers decided to change it to My Bloody Valentine. Can you guess why, Joe? Uh, they like the song? <laughs> oh my god, that's so cute. No. <laughs> so there was a, a trend in horror at the time to do holiday serial killers. Um, I mean, at the time, you can look at Black Christmas in 74, Halloween in 78, Friday mm-hmm. the 13th in 1980. But then you also have Terror Train, which is New Year's in 1980. And then Prom yeah. Night, which isn't really a holiday, but it's an event, which is also in 1980. Right. Wow, it's weird. Thinking over that list, we've only covered one of those films. Yeah, yeah, we have. I mean, we'll cover the original Black Christmas one day because I know you're dying to do it. I love it, yes. I mean, I do too. I think Black Christmas is amazing. So, okay, shooting begins in the film in September of 1980 in Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia, which had closed in 1975. It only films for a couple months. Have you, like, gone to tour this site, Joe? No, I've actually only been to, like, a big city in Nova Scotia. How far away is that from you? Oh, it's very, very far. It's on the East Coast. So it's, you know how you're always getting confused about where things are geographically. And I'm like, well, Vancouver is on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Think of the entire opposite side of the country. And that's where this filming location is. Gotcha. Okay. Far, far East Coast. I don't know. When I think of Nova Scotia, I just think of like desolation, like just desolate areas. Like it just sounds like there's nothing there, but I'm probably wrong. (laughs) Yeah, you're completely wrong. It's uh, (laughs) it's a lot of forest, to be honest. There you go. See, that's what I mean. (laughs) Forest and fishing, that's what they've got They they actually picked this location though specifically for the mines Yes It was dangerous to film, methane levels were underground So lighting had to be carefully planned The types of bulbs, the number of bulbs that were being used So that nothing would explode Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that's why we get that kind of What I thought was going to be a Chekhov's line In the beginning of the film where they talk about the methane levels Yes Yeah, it doesn't really come to much, but even things like the lighting that you're seeing in the mine, it's, you know, specific to what you could actually do in terms of how bright bulbs can be and that sort of thing. Well, and I actually, that's one of the things that I like about this film is that I think the lighting when you're in the mines looks really good. Yes, the mines themselves look great. And it's in part, I think, because they didn't try to build them. Like, they don't look fake as fuck, which ringing the 2009 remake. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I have not seen that remake since it came out in theaters in 2009, so I'm excited to revisit it for our Patreon commentary, well, that's coming out in a couple days. If I recall correctly, I actually, okay, so you know how I said I like the ending of this movie a lot? Mm -hmm. I like everything else fine. I recall really liking everything about that remake until the ending, and I 
fucking hate the ending. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're not going to spoil anything because that is a film that you can be spoiled on. But yeah, the ending of that film leaves a lot of people pretty cold. I'm going to say this and you can tell me if I, if we're going to cut it out or not, but it's not really the identity of the killer that's my problem. It's that the, the, the film tricks the audience. It shows you something, like a mm-hmm. scene, and then flat out says, nope, that actually didn't happen. And that's why this person's the killer. Yeah. 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 yeah so maybe we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. It fucking sucks. And we'll see if I appreciate it on a rewatch. Anyway. So the look of the mines, actually, what you're saying, um, oh, they almost weren't like that. So the town was so excited that a movie was going to film in this mine. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was going to attract tourism, and so they actually cleaned up the location significantly, leaving it, I guess what the director described it as, a clean and colorful Disneyland-like set. <laughs> this is the opposite of what they wanted. They picked this mine for how disgusting and grungy and dirty it looked. Yeah, they wanted authenticity, and then the townspeople were, you know, I don't want to say quintessentially Canadian, but they just got so excited. They were like, here, we'll just spruce it up for you a little bit. (laughs) So they spent tens of thousands of dollars. I found conflicting reports. One said $30,000, another one said $35,000, so I'm not sure which is true. But just to make them dirty again. (laughs) Right. Which is not an insignificant amount of money. Like, nowadays it sounds like, oh, well, it's just 30 grand. Who cares? But considering the production budget for a film like this, that's a fair chunk of change. Yeah, and the budget for this was $2.3 million. So, yeah, it's not not nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, this is something that I love, too. The crew kept the identity of the killer a secret to the cast members until the end of production so that they could play the roles as authentically as possible. Cool. Yeah. I'm of two minds with this method, Joe, because I feel like that's something that happens still, like, especially in TV. You know, know, we're doing a rewatch of Harper's Island and they did the same thing in that show where they didn't tell the person who was the killer. I... I feel like as an actor, shouldn't you have all the information so you know what you're playing with? But then I also get the other side, like the, the, the studio side or the writer side, where it's like, well, but we don't want you to, like, sneak any, like, tells into your mm-hmm. performance. So, yeah. I don't know. I think it works better in a long game like Harper's Island because you don't want them to be doing that tip of the hat in the very first episode. So you want a couple of episodes of authentic realness. I don't know about a film. I mean, I gather that you're actually filming a film for quite a long period of time and often out of order. So I guess maybe that's the only consideration is that you might be filming something early and then it could end up like spoiling something in that regard. I don't know. Well, I guess if it's in the film too, like, I mean, My Bloody Valentine, and there was no internet back then, you know, but like, then look at Scream 5 now where it's, or any of the Scream films, where Scream 2, where it's like, oh, we're not telling anyone who the killer is, but that's also because they're constantly changing the script. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear from people who have acted whether they've had information withheld from them and whether they feel it helps or hinders their performance. Yes. Oh, my God. Please. If anyone is listening that falls into this category, please reach out because I'm dying to know. Mm -hmm. Or if if people are creators, like if you have directed films and you've used this approach, I'm curious because this feels like a different kind of method to me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I mean, again, I, I'm coming at this from someone, I mean, <laughs> I haven't acted since I was in high school, but like, I, I just remember like, what exercises and like, things you have to do, like in the lead up to the play, and like, not just rehearsal, but like, character work. And like, mm-hmm. we like, had to write mm-hmm. journals in the mind of our character and all this stuff. Right. So how would you do that? If then a whole section of your character? <laughs> yeah, you don't know yet. Like, and you find out, you know, the last couple of days of filming, and you're like, well, fuck, <laughs> I'm right. the killer. 
<laughs> I guess in this particular instance, it sort of works because you do get the impression that Axel has undergone some kind of psychotic break. Yes, I have things to say about his motive and like the flashback. Oh, the motive is garbage, but it's so fun. (laughs) It is, it is. I'm not going to like fault this film for logical inconsistencies, but like there's a big one for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you almost need two killers because there's no way Axel could have done all of this. Well, also that no one mentions that his dad was one of the people murdered by Henry Warden or whatever. Harry Warden. (laughs) Like, it's just something one of the cops was like, oh yeah, his dad was murdered by him. Oh, Mm -hmm. right. (laughs) After the fact, yeah. Yes. Okay, so My Bloody Valentine, um, again, budget of $2.3 million. It is released by Paramount Pictures. Again, same studio that does Friday the 13th. Sure. On February 11th, 1981. And at the time, it's got a runtime of 90 minutes. Now, if you have the Scream Factory Blue, um, you might notice that you have an unrated cut, which is 93 minutes. Now, a lot of times when you get unrated versus theatrical or whatever, it's like, oh, let's just put some extra shit in here, like deleted scenes or whatever. Give me the tits. Yeah, it's not, I, I'm even thinking about, okay, this is a random reference, but Harold and Kumar, it's like a couple of extended scenes, and like, there's nothing right. really are super mature about those extras not the case here so my bloody valentine was significantly censored in north america upon its theatrical release the mpaa for them to award the movie with an r rating cuts were requested to every single death sequence in the film with one removed outright which is the uh, michael and shannon is it michael and shannon no harriet michael and harriet damn it i can't remember her fucking name I don't think she's in this movie before that scene. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't show up in my notes until quite late, so it's entirely possible. But yeah, so basically the producer said the film was essentially cut to ribbons in order to achieve the R rating. Even after cutting the film to match the requirements made by the MPAA, it was again returned with an X rating and further cuts were demanded. About nine minutes of footage were cut for the theatrical release. Three minutes of gore were returned for this Blu-ray release. Now, there is a remaining six minutes that's left behind. One of them is Michael and Harriet's death scene, but the rest of it is mostly just, like, character beats and moments. Like, nothing that's, like, R-rated. It's just, like, it was cut out and they lost it. Yeah. Yeah. But I do want to point out that this is another case, much like Cursed, because Fangoria existed here, where stills of the gore were actually put in a Fangoria magazine before the film came out. Oh no, so you're reading Fangoria magazine, looking at this gore, thinking, oh, I can't wait to see that on the big screen, and then nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's really nuts. I mean, Fangoria was founded in 1979, so it's a relatively new magazine, but they knew how to get their shit. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, so it's not tits, it's gore it's gore very much so but again basically the director is says that the screen factory blew this 93 minute cut which is the version that we watched for this show mm-hmm. it's a strong recommend folks i agree i don't know if the unrated cuts available to stream anywhere oh i doubt it yeah yeah but again this is not an alien 3 situation where you're missing story beats it's literally just extra minutes of gore but i'm gonna say that gore is good folks like good gore but even still, um, the director says that this 93-minute version is 80 to 85% of the way of how the film is meant to be. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that's got to be so frustrating as a creative. This is not how you want the film to play, and you don't have that control. What a fucking piss off. <laughs> but there are two reasons for this, and I, I'm fascinated by both of them. Okay. So one, um, supposedly Paramount Pictures was keen to remove the offending footage due to the backlash they'd received from releasing Friday the 13th the year prior. Right. That would make sense to me 
if Friday the 13th Part 2 wasn't going to be released two to three months after this. Mm-hmm. If I recall, that also ran into censorship trouble, did it not? Yes, they had stuff cut out, which was put on the new set that Screen Factory did as well that just came out. Um, Gore! It wasn't to the extent of this. I see. Okay. It was, I mean, like, there were some things, but, like, you know, whatever. But then the other one, though, is that the murder of John Lennon, which was in December of 1980, that sparked a major backlash against movie violence in the wake of his death. So we are now dealing with another national tragedy in which the horror genre is, like, not really blamed, but, like, is criticized for depicting violence. Yeah, and folks, we have talked about censorship being tied into real-life events and... Again, we've got a whole Patreon episode on censorship and how ridiculous it is. This in particular is so bizarre to me because, Mm -hmm. yes, it's violence in entertainment. But like John Lennon was a singer and this is gun violence. This is a slasher film that's aimed at teenage audiences. It has no guns in it at all. No, none. (laughs) What are you talking about? It's really weird. I mean, but you know, it's the 80s. We're pre-Reagan era. Mm, he would have just gotten in. Reagan, yeah, Reagan has just been elected president. He was inaugurated a month, actually less than a month before this movie came out. Interesting. I mean, I feel like the political tension would have been there because, of course, he would have been elected on a certain kind of platform and people would have expected him coming in with a certain kind of agenda. So, like, I'm sure the temperature of the nation was already moving into conservative territory. So all you need is some kind of big politicized event like the death of a extremely public figure but still i just i I find it galling that anybody would say oh well let's equate the two because they have no relationship i mean that's the mpaa i do wonder too if ronald reagan's like past as a hollywood actor had anything to do with like you know more scrutiny on hollywood films in general oh interesting maybe that could be an interesting dive somebody look it up tell us (laughs) look it up do do our work for us please Um, so yeah, this film comes out February 11th, 1981. I don't have opening weekend ranks, but it, it went on to gross $5.7 million. So it did make double its money back, but it still was seen as kind of a disappointment by Paramount, especially since it made like way less than what Friday the 13th made. Yeah, and you can tell because there's obviously plans for a sequel at the end of this film, and there ain't no sequel. Exactly. Reception? Okay, so this is interesting. So at the time, the film wasn't received particularly well. But in the past, like, I'm gonna say, honestly, anything after like 2000, like this film has kind of found like a new audience of people really coming to to bat for it. Yeah. And like I said earlier, Quentin Tarantino, but... (laughs) <laughs> At the time, you were seeing things like, the script is awkward, it's a ripoff of Halloween. Okay, this is weird. It's certain to make you squirm, first with irritation and then with revulsion. And again, this is the theatrical cut that has most of the gore removed. <laughs> yeah, what is that about? Did that person have, like, hemorrhoids or something? I have oh, no idea. This making me squirm. Some people thought that the mind scenes were hard to see, like you couldn't tell what was going on. That's entirely possible. Bear in mind, we are watching a very nicely cleaned up print now. Yes, absolutely. Characters and plot are uninteresting and predictable. I will probably agree with that critique. (laughs) Uh, Fair, but I would also say, see also every other slasher. No, I I 100, (laughs) and that's why I'm like, oh, I don't dislike this movie because the critiques I'm lobbying against it, like other slashers do fall prey to. Mm -hmm. I don't find this movie quite as charming or entertaining, I guess I'll even say, as some other of my favorite slashers from the time. Sure. Okay. 
too convoluted, too derivative, and oddly too ambitious to properly coagulate into the kind of exploitation movie it tries to be. Oh my god, people, this is not an exploitation film. You are conflating different genres, like, so different. You can't say an exploitation film is a slasher film. Like, you can say that there are exploitation elements, but that is the improper use. Yeah, but but big criticism, and this is the thing that I find fascinating. So, Joe, last week, you know, we covered Splice, and you gave us kind of a brief rundown of how Canada finances the films that it produces. So several reviewers were highly critical of the film's partial financing by the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which used taxed income from Canadian provinces to help fund its production. So one, of course, is our good friend Gene Siskel. Of course. He says, a dismal and depressing horror film, another entry in that most depressing of film genres, The Mad Slasher with a Knife. All this perverted gore is brought to you thanks to the financial help of the Canadian Film Development Corp., which uses your own tax money to help greedy, talentless producers make a killing. You should pardon the expression. (laughs) Oh, yes. And folks, just let me give you a, a tasteful reminder that David Cronenberg himself was dragged into the equivalent of the Capitol building to answer for his first theatrical film, Shivers, because of the exact same reason. Yeah. Like, guess what? We fund all different kinds of art, people. Just because some people find it tasteless doesn't mean it doesn't have merit. I just love this. Like, blame the Canadian government for even allowing this movie. Because I guess, like, oh, there's a studio to blame here. I guess Paramount. I'm surprised there wasn't more. Well, Paramount released Friday the 13th last year. Of course, they're bringing us this shit. But no, it's your government. (laughs) Well, I think it's easier to go after the government because you can really get average people outraged like your tax dollars paid for this movie particularly during this time right like this is when a lot of hollywood productions are traveling north to canada so that you can film here so there were a number of productions like basically all the jamie lee curtis films were shot in either toronto or montreal you had this one so basically canada gets inundated with these hollywood north productions and I really think there was an onus from conservative-minded folks, <laughs> uppity bitches, we'll say, who really wanted to try to say, well, we shouldn't be allowing these people to make money off of us this way. Like, why are we funding these productions and allowing them to come here and, you know, muddy the waters? Yeah, exactly. Now, that being said, there were positive reviews. Like, Some people actually did think that it was beautifully photographed. They liked how they used the mind, how it was a unique setting, which fully yeah, agree. Yeah, absolutely. They appreciated that it was more restrained and even tasteful than other slasher films of its kind. Of course, that's because of the censorship. (laughs) (laughs) They like that the women are treated better than most other slasher films treat them. Mm -hmm. And the cinematography is sharp and the musical score is foreboding. I will say that one of my big critiques of this film is I don't think Paul Zaza's score. And Paul Zaza is a man who's no stranger to scoring films he's done all the prom nights he's done porkies a christmas story and popcorn i don't think this score is that memorable i think we're missing a theme i think we're missing a theme song here yes yeah when the most memorable music cue in this is actually the ballad of harry warden which is the song that plays over the closing credits like Mm -hmm. i don't think the score is doing enough heavy lifting yeah. So we're looking at a 54% approval um, on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.7 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 6.6 out of 10. Now, it has received like much critical acclaim now. I mean, acclaim. Like, people like it. Right. The weird thing that I saw <laughs> in 2007 Entertainment Weekly ranked at number 17 in a list of guilty pleasures. Now, hmm. 
I would immediately like balk my head at that and be like, okay, we're, we're, no, no guilty pleasures. But here's the thing. Paired alongside films like Dawn of the Dead and Escape from New York. I I, I have questions. I, I, I <laughs> Sir, need... I have questions. <laughs> I need to see this list. I'm so fucking confused by None what... None of those are guilty pleasures. Like, Showgirls falls into this category. You have to use the term guilty pleasure. Yeah, I don't get it. <sighs> Nevertheless, people like it now. It, it's considered a classic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I honestly, like, do a holiday horror marathon and this will happily fit in unless you want to watch Valentine instead. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, I could do with a little bit more Valentine's horror because I do feel like there's more weight to be mined, particularly in the modern age about like people who are berated by Hallmark cards and chocolates and told like you're going to die alone if you don't have somebody for Valentine's Day. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, one thing that both this movie and Valentine do that I really love, and it's so gimmicky, it's the damn Valentine cards with the, with the little rhymes. Yes. The demented rhymes, though, like not the happy ones. And this movie gives us three. We do get a fourth one, but it's just like, you didn't stop the dance. And I was like, oh, I, 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 I guess the killer like ran out of ideas. <laughs> Boo, that fourth one is not up to par. <laughs> But um, but yeah, no, I mean that's really it. Um, I mean we've kind of talked about general shit to death, so why don't we dive into the, what happens in this movie, Joe? Sounds good. So we open with a cold open in which two miners make out in the mine, and one of them is revealed to be a woman. The other person does not take their mask off. Honestly, I know I'm probably going to gush a lot during this episode because I do honestly like this movie, but I love this opening sequence with this gorgeous blonde woman just doffing her top and you're just like, what is happening in this movie? Is this X-rated? I I agree with you. I actually do like this opening a lot because I feel like this opening is their way of saying, like, you think you're going to get a movie like this and Mm -hmm. you're not going to get a movie. So this is really the only, like, full-on, like, I mean, it's not even sex. We don't, there's no sex scene in this movie. There's no sex. There's no tits. Yeah. Um, but we do get, like again, the way that this is shot. I mean, actually, this performance of this woman, as she, like, strokes the mask tube mm-hmm. as if it's a phallic object. Oh, yes. We're deep into fetish and kink, and I love it. It's really cool. And honestly, I think this is also one of the best effects when she gets pushed onto the knife. Also, mm-hmm. what I love, so this girl... I'm assuming she knows who's under this mask. So she knows it's Axel, which means that while Axel is wooing Sarah, he's now bringing this girl down to murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For reasons unknown. Yeah, we don't even <laughs> and know And no one ever is. comments on this woman's disappearance either. Oh, right. Because it's her heart that's in the box, but we, no one ever, like, talks about her. No. I will say, I know it's a little bit gimmicky. Well, a lot of things are yeah. actually quite gimmicky in this movie i do love that she gets impaled right through that little mini heart tattoo no it's great and whatever effect they use for her chest because like it like comes out but like the skin doesn't break like it looks kind of elastic almost i think mm-hmm. that's a really cool and honestly very upsetting visual yeah yeah and it's not overdone like she gets punctured she's more or less dead and then we get our title card Yep, with um two hearts for the O's in bloody, and they actually drip blood. Super cute. It's a very good tattoo. <laughs> no, and again, this is where you get your goddamn theme song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But instead, we've got to look at the mines. This is true. Yeah. So uh, this film is set over the course of three days. So we do begin on Thursday, February 12th on the lead up to 
this big dance. But first we have to open with the men of the Hanager mine, and they're celebrating the end of their work date by... By showering together. <laughs> sexy homoerotic shower time, baby. Apparently all these men were actually naked in this scene, too. So while watching this, I was like, this is kind of hot. Oh, it's not kind of. You can just take that word right out of there. It's eye candy. I do find a lot, almost every man in this movie, I find very attractive. Actually, the the one I think is the hottest is the hot dog boy. Oh, uh, really? Oh, I love Dave. Dave is hot. He is quite twinky, yes. <laughs> I am partial to Axel, although he his acting sometimes leaves me a little bit cold. Yeah, well, we can talk about this love triangle once we kind of get into the meat of it, because... Oh my god, I hate the love triangle. It's really stupid. I don't <laughs> like it. But I mean, that, that, that's the movie's attempt to do something more beyond just, oh, kill them all, you know? Sure, yeah. It's trying to give us an interior character life for these individuals. So, so right. yes, almost right away, we learn through exposition that there is this existing rivalry between Axel, who is played by Neil Affleck, and TJ, who is played by Paul Kelman. And oh, TJ's cute, too. He is cute, too. Yeah. And <laughs> I love that his shirt gets progressively more open as the film goes on. Ooh, good catch. Didn't even notice. <laughs> yes, and that little the little side handkerchief around his neck. I've seen a porn or two that favors this aesthetic. Yes. I'll, I'll go for that. <laughs> yeah, but I love that we go from this like, oh, all these naked men showering very homoerotically. And I don't care if you'll disagree. Mm-hmm. To them, them leaving the mines and we get like deliberate style banjo music play. <laughs> yeah. So there's two scenes of cars driving away from this mine. And I love that there's a juxtaposition. So in this case, it's very celebratory. Like they're very rowdy because it's the end of the day. They get to go drink that delicious moosehead beer. And then we'll get another one after the party goes to shit and they drive out. And it's basically the scream sequence when everybody takes off to go look yes! at Principal oh my Henry's God. body. <laughs> You're totally right. <laughs> Yeah, I will make the case that I think Kevin Williamson is intimately familiar with this because I'm also going to reference Halloween H2O later. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> okay, so yes, everyone in town is gearing up for... Oh, sorry, this town is called Valentine's Bluff, which I love. <laughs> Fucking love it. I like it. I, I like it, too. It, it's it's funny. <laughs> so basically what you learn is that this town has a sad history in which there was a massacre, but everybody is very excited because for the first time in 20 years, they are going to throw this dance. And honestly, life in this town looks like it sucks apart from this. So it's easy to understand why something as simple as a dance is going to bring joy into these people's lives. No, like, yeah, this town looks like shit. Like, I'm sorry for whatever nova scotia mining town this is but like oh my god <laughs> this looks miserable yes and we're gonna we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit so we're okay. introduced to the i mean they're all adults but we're introduced to the adults who are mabel played by patricia hamilton and she is this like super kindly old lady who's super excited about the dance Yes, um, so she was known for playing Rachel in Anne of Green Gables and uh, I guess a bunch of its sequels. And so I think that her being in this is like one of those, oh, this woman who does wholesome television movies is doing this horror film. And that's a shout out back to last week's episode when we talked about how Sarah Polly was also on Anne of Green Gables. No, she was on Road to Avonlea, sorry. But okay. <laughs> basically two quintessential texts that come out of Eastern Canada slash the Maritimes. Got it. All right. Yeah. 
I do like this character. She, I feel like, I mean, I, I was about to say, if this movie were remade, mm-hmm. if it were remade more accurately with this character, um, I can see this being Lin Shay. Oh, God, yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah. We also have the mayor, who is played by Larry Reynolds, and we will eventually realize that he is TJ's father. Yep. Doesn't really amount to much, but yep. Uh, yeah, again, I'll, I'll yeah, say more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they end up checking out the kids who are setting up this dance hall for them. And the final important character that we're meeting at this point is Chief Newbie, who is played by Don Franks. He's just a kindly guy who seems to be doing everybody favors. Like, you get the impression this is a town that doesn't have a lot of crime going on, except for, right. you know, that problematic murder that happened 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And again, it's so funny, because whenever I watch an old movie and it's like, oh, 20 years ago, it's like, oh, I forget. Oh, that's 1960. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, do, do you don't want to give us a rundown of all these important characters and give me at least one, like, major defining trait for each of them? <laughs> Uh, well... There's someone named Gretchen here, and I can tell you right now, I don't know who Gretchen is. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they all mostly look the same. Basically, <laughs> there's there's a couple of characters that are significant. Like, we'll meet Sarah, who is the third member of this love triangle, played by Laurie Hallier. And we also have Hollis, who, as I mentioned, is my pudgy lover, played by Keith Knight. Mm-hmm. There's Howard, who is the lovable prankster who was played by Alf Humphreys. And then Mike is kind of the other significant character, but he doesn't get a ton to do. He's played by Tom Kovacs. And a uh, very odd connection, Trace. I actually okay. know Tom Kovacs personally because what? he was on my water polo team. Is he gay? I don't believe he is. But... <laughs> Wait, but did you talk to him about, about my bloody Valentine? So I didn't realize that he was in this movie until the oh, Scream God. Factory came out. And by that point, I had already stopped going to water polo. But he is an actual musician. So he's also the individual who sings the ballad of Harry Warden at the end of this film. Oh and you can watch God. him sing it live at, I think it's a reunion con on the Blu-ray. That is awesome. That is a crazy connection. I love that. I love I that for you. Good it's for so you. Weird. Sports do things. <laughs> it's also one of those things where you're like, is Canada only 10 people separated by... It's not? A million miles of geography? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so one thing that we haven't touched on is that we do get a flashback to this accident that happened. And uh, we find out that it was human error when they were having a dance 20 years before. Basically, people fucked off and didn't take care of closing the mine down properly. And there ended up being this explosion. And Harry Warden was one of the people who was trapped in the mine. It went on for quite a long time, and he ended up surviving by turning into a cannibal. Mm-hmm. And then he was sent away to an institution. But he threatened that if there was ever another dance, well, okay, wait, 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 he would wait, come wait, back. Wait, because <laughs> this is all delivered by the harbinger, this old man bartender. Yes. So it's not only so he turned into a cannibal, was locked away for a year. He got out a year later, which mm-hmm. you know, God sure. bless the psychologist who said you're good to go back into society. <laughs> he immediately goes to so basically the reason the mine happened is because there were two people who were supposed to be like supervising like the exterior of the mines and they Correct. left their post. Yeah. So he goes back and kills those two people and that will be important later. And then after that, he presumably went back to the institution, but <laughs> no one has any record of him ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like they locked him up and just forgot about him all this time, but they've also been so afraid of him that they've never had another dance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to which I'm like, well, just check on him like a week before. It's, and yeah, then right. Set up the dance. 
<laughs> These poor people, they have been living a life of footloose madness where no one will let them have a dance. Like, you have to expect John Lithgow to show up and be like, no, we're not having a dance. Well, that's where it gets convoluted, right? Because, yeah, all they have to do is just say, where is this guy? Honestly, the sheriff's a real idiot for not keeping track on this guy for a long enough time. Like, this whole town is scarred by this one incident. And it's like, oh, we can do anything we want. We just can't have a Valentine's dance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Check your bases, people. Uh, February is just a really dark time in this small town. But, you know, New Year's is kicking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay. I do like, though, that we open this film with that fun segment, and then we also do get this flashback, because normally you would just open with this. Like, this would be your inciting incident, and then it would be, like, 20 years later. And that's why I'm excited to revisit this remake, because I I know we keep the love triangle, and their names are the same, and Harry Warden is the same name, but I don't remember, like, if they adjust the backstory or anything. I I feel like they do. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. You know what, people, you'll be able to listen to it in like a day. And a day. We'll talk <laughs> about it like we know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> ah, good times. Yeah. Okay. So important that we do get a little bit more details about the whole love triangle element. And I know for a lot of people, it's not going to be their favorite part of this film because it's a blah, blah, boring character detail. I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the effort. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work for me, but I like that it's trying, like, again, it's injecting human drama into what would otherwise be a pretty standard slasher film. Exactly. Yeah. So we learn that TJ not only left town, but that he used to date Sarah and that she is now dating Axel, hence the love triangle. Now, Trace, if you'll indulge me with a brief tangent, I'm just going to give you some context about why I think this is actually more meaningful than you might realize. But people probably don't know this because it's a very specific Canadian thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Here we (laughs) go, people. This is why I'm a Canadian on a podcast, because I can occasionally have these insights. By all means. Okay, so Nova Scotia, as I mentioned, it's on the East Coast. It's part of the Maritimes, which is a blanket umbrella term for three different provinces. And for U.S. listeners and international listeners, provinces are the same as states and other, you know, kind of contained geographical areas. So we've got New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. And these are among the smallest provinces in Canada. So you're looking at small populations, a lot of small towns, rural towns. So you're not going to get concrete skyscrapers. You're not going to get big money bag, Wall Street kind of people. It's very salt of the earth people who are living a little bit hand of mouth, often relying on things like tourism and natural resources, in particular on the East Coast, with fishing and mining, hence where we are with this film. And so TJ moved west to escape this life. Correct. Yeah. So I think people who are from small towns, like our listeners who are from small towns who move to bigger cities, are going to feel a lot of connection to TJ's story, even though it doesn't get a lot of mileage in the actual screenplay. But it's this idea that what you're seeing around you doesn't reflect your ambition or your desire. So you leave the small town behind to try to get a better job, to meet new people, I will say I'd like to impose a bit of a queer reading on the way that Axel and TJ fight in this film. I think that Sarah's kind of the thing that they fight over, but they secretly like each other. If you look at it that way, then TJ runs away to the big city so that he can maybe experiment with his sexuality. This mm. is me reaching 100%. No, yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's totally fine. Again, this is not a serious movie. No. 
also we do see axel and tj naked together we do mm-hmm. not see sarah naked with any of these boys <laughs> no i don't think sarah even likes these boys let's be honest <laughs> also i i feel compelled this is super late to the game but i feel compelled to admit that you know, i said oh the movie was released february 11th 1981 which means this episode is dropping a day before the film's 40th anniversary yeah baby <laughs> <laughs> okay so just a little bit more yeah yeah So Nova Scotia, the setting of this is obviously important because of the mine, but it's also important because one of Canada's most famous fictional narratives, like, so Canada doesn't have a super long history with fiction films. We didn't really get going until the late 60s and early 70s. And a lot of those were funded by the government, as you mentioned, Trace. One of the first ones that ever got made in the English language is called Going Down the Road, and it's from 1970, and it's about a man who's played by Doug McGrath, and it's funny that we talked about Black Christmas because he's the death sergeant in that film, the one that Margot Kidder makes the fellatio joke about. Mm -hmm. So it's about him living in a really small Nova Scotia town, and he leaves because he's not getting the kinds of opportunities he wants a better life for himself, and he comes to Toronto But at the end of the film, he has completely fucked up his opportunities and he has to like put his tail between his legs and go home, which is exactly the same situation that happens with TJ. I'm so happy you're a Canadian and you can say these things because I never would have put that was a lot that, that was a lesson and I really appreciate it <laughs> y'all the horror queers are delivering you two weeks of Canadian stuff <laughs> yes don't worry we're not doing more Canadiana for a little bit so you have indulged me long enough but I just thought it, it's significant no, because I like if it. you if you see yourself in TJ or if you come from a small town a lot of that will resonate but in the film he's often treated like a bit of a pariah and that's part of the reason it's because he got out even if it was only briefly but Mm -hmm. people like axel people like his father who wanted him to stay and inherit the mine they resent him for trying to break free of these conventions yeah no i get that and again it's 1981 we're entering like a very 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 conservative period of uh, well america but (laughs) (laughs) this is true Yeah, so back to the film. This is where the chief and the mayor get their first box of not quite chocolates and more bloody hearts. So yeah, uh, this, this, I'm going to read it. From the heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer. Remember what happened as the 14th draws near. And then it's a bloody heart. It's that woman from the beginning, her bloody ass heart, which, Mm -hmm. okay, realistically would not, the lid would not fully close over this box. (laughs) No, hearts are big. <laughs> it's a big-ass thing! Although we do get to see a cooked one later, and I appreciated the color change. This is true, yeah. And that one looked very healthy and plump. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. But it was in a pot. It wasn't in a box. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, a deleted scene of Axel just, like, tenderizing this heart to make sure it gets into the box properly? Yeah. Like... <laughs> no, they taking this meat mallet and just, like, fucking pounding the shit out of it. <laughs> I'm sorry, wait. Uh, a meat mallet? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> anyway so yeah they're freaked out yeah so um oh wait i'm sorry the mayor's reaction it's not like a oh my god he just goes back and goes oh like it's like oh geez this heart in my box of chocolates yeah like oh fuck this isn't what i wanted well he is he is talking about his diet so i guess maybe he really had his heart set on some chocolate Uh, yeah, and also hearts are really, if you eat heart, they're actually like, you can eat hearts, but they're really, really high in cholesterol. Okay, and I'm hoping that you've never had a human heart, but you might have consumed, what, a cow heart? Chicken hearts. Oh, I see. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know about other grocery stores, but the grocery stores in Texas, she's like, again, in the awful section, <laughs> OFFAL, you can find chicken hearts for really, it was like a dollar a pound for chicken hearts, and it's fucking great. You just make it with brown gravy and rice. Mm, so good. <laughs> yes, everyone, in case you've forgotten, Trace is a connoisseur of weird food. Give it to me. I want it all. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll try anything once, right? Mm-hmm, at least once. Okay, cool. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, ooh, shit. We probably shouldn't be having this dance because clearly someone has killed someone over it. <laughs> we get a brief scene where Sarah reminds TJ that it's basically his fault that they're not together anymore and that he needs to learn to let it go. I mean, honestly, that was a dick move. Like, he left, didn't read, write to her, did not call her, just fucking skipped town and was yeah. like, see ya. So that they're still together at the end of this movie is shocking to me. Uh, I mean, to me, it confirms that her relationship with Axel was very much a rebound. I get don't that. don't know how much she actually likes him. No, I mean, I get that too, but I'm just like, I don't see enough of a reconciliation between, like, he takes her to the water and gives her some spiel, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, but, like, you really ditched her, and, like, there needs to be more of a conversation about this. <laughs> yeah. I will say, uh, I listened to the audio commentary when I reviewed this Blu-ray when it came out, I want to say, last year? Maybe I think it was last ago. year, yeah. And there's so much talk about how fucking hard it was to shoot this, because they were filming it at dawn, so they only had a certain amount of minutes every day to try to get it before the sun rose too high. <laughs> I'm just like, oh man, the limitations of shooting outdoor with natural light. No, thank you, sir. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that happens, cool, romance, blah, blah, blah. Bleh. And then we get our first big murder in the movie, and that is poor Mabel, who was killed in her laundromat... Okay, why why does she get killed? Is she like is she the organizer of the dance? Yeah, I get the impression that she's like the chairman of the board kind of deal. Got it. So her Valentine reads, "Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead, and so are you." Oh, I actually will say too that this scare where he jumps out from behind her mm-hmm. is legitimately scary because I tried to put myself in her shoes and I was like, if I was reading this creepy ass Valentine. Like, and this guy in a mining outfit literally just jumps out right behind you. And the way that this is filmed is actually really good, too. Mm-hmm. It's very claustrophobic because it's like the, 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 the washers and dryers are on the sides. You have the table in the middle. And she is backing up and backing up and backing up. And he grabs her by the hair. It's a really, this is probably the most um, frightening death scene of the film for me. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Mine is Sylvia's, but sure. Oh, ooh, okay, yeah, when we get to that, mm, I think that's the most creative death scene. By me, yeah. Maybe not the most frightening, but yeah, but yeah, close call for me. (laughs) They're both very effective, yeah. They're both good, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so she is murdered. We will see a little bit more of her in a little bit. If you have the unrated cut. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. I will give a quick shout out to something that a lot of people may miss but it is an actual thing so there's a brief scene where we see hollis howard and mike cooking food on the engines of their cars is that something canadians do it's not something that canadians specifically do but (laughs) it's something that you might not think is even possible but apparently uh yeah you actually can do this all right (laughs) try it out and let me know joe I mean, maybe it was a thing back in 1981 on the East Coast. I can't say for certain. I can tell you as a person who's always lived in a big city, I have never tried to cook a meal in a car engine. I mean, as someone who grew up in the suburbs of a big city, I have never tried to cook a meal on a car engine. 
Okay. New homework assignment for everybody. I would like to know if anyone has ever cooked a meal on a car. Honestly, you should, because I know we're all like staying at home right now, but you really should be turning your cars on at least once a week. Oh, pro tip. Okay. Mm -hmm. Helpful. Especially for those of us who are in colder conditions too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's it's good for the engine to like run at least once a week. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, so a little bit more TJ and Axel stuff. Obviously, TJ still loves her. Axel's like, fuck off, I hate you. Yeah. But, you know, it's all very smoldering looks over this... Where are they? Like a car park or something? Yeah, I wrote they're they're, they're hanging out in a totaled car and playing harmonica. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they just fight. Axel tells TJ to stay the hell away from Sarah. Um, who I then put in parentheses is the blonde with pigtails. <laughs> <laughs> she is gorgeous, though. Yeah. Lori Hallier is really just stunningly gorgeous in this movie. Oh, I, I agree. But this marks the end of the movie section of Thursday, February 12th, and we are now moving into February, Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing significant about that date. Nothing at all. So we do get Chief Newbie trying to confirm the location of Harry Warden because, of course, we've got a death. So he wants to make sure that Harry Warden is still locked up. And I love the line delivery of this woman that he is talking to on the (laughs) phone. She's so rude. Because she does not give two shits about his situation. Well, she's like, "Uh, well, I've gone through everything except for the microfilm files, but that's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, like, I'm really not interested in doing that. Do you want me to? Like, because I really would rather not. (laughs) Oh, you found a heart in a box of chocolates? I'm sorry. Big deal. The Zodiac Killer's still free. (laughs) Don't we all have bigger fish to fry? (laughs) So he's like, yeah, I'm gonna need that and uh, get back to me. Well, because she's gonna take a couple days and he's like, the dance is fucking tomorrow, bitch. Let's go. Yes. uh, It should be noted that he and the mayor have made a decision to not tell anybody about the actual murder and this is stupid that that seems like it's illegal maybe not in canada uh no i'm pretty sure it's just bad decision making all around regardless of what <laughs> nation you live in it's weird to me too maybe you don't say anything after you just get a heart in a box but at this point this is also where they literally discover mabel's body spinning and cooking in slow-mo in that dryer yeah and like chief newbie we find out later he and mabel were maybe gonna be sweethearts and he's I know. just like well i don't want to alarm anybody <laughs> it's honestly why i kind of wish that mabel i mean again she's the least important character speaking but i was more interested in that maybe romance between her and the sheriff than i am about axel tj and sarah <laughs> Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> because you see the sheriff, like, be really sad about it. Like, you see him not grieve, per se, but, like, there's moments there. Yeah. He is very clearly upset by this death. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they, they do decide that they are going to cancel the death. The dance. No, the dance. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> We're going to cancel this death. We're not going to keep it. We're just going to reanimate her. Bring out your, your witchcraft. <laughs> Um, okay, so they, they decide that they're going to keep this death a secret. There is a note. Do you have the third note? I do. It said, oh, also, yeah, the note is inside uh, Mabel's chest cavity, by the way. Yeah, icky gooey. <laughs> Folks, if you are at all interested in the gorier cut of this film, it's worth the price of admission for this death scene alone. Because, Mabel, like, when I said that she is spinning and cooking, that corpse is yeah goopy the eyes are all cloudy 
And I'm fairly sure this is an added insert shot, but when they pull... So there's a shot where you see his hand go to grab the note out of her chest, mm-hmm. but then there's a shot of a close-up of the cavity of her chest as he pulls the note out, and I can almost guarantee you that's not the theatrical cut, but... Mm-hmm. It's full-on Suspiria 2018. It really is. <laughs> that wasn't censored. No. So <laughs> the uh, the note says, It happened once, it happened twice, cancel the dance or it'll happen thrice. That sounds like something from the Leprechaun franchise. A little bit of that. I am clearly more gay than you because it reminded me of Golden Girls. There's an episode where the girls are challenged with coming up with a jingle about Miami and Dorothy and Blanche make fun of Rose because her slogan has Miami is nice, so I'll say it thrice. And Dorothy says, who the fuck says thrice? (laughs) She doesn't say fuck, but she should have. Yeah, I mean, she would have if it was like, you know, released today. 100%. I mean, I am 100% Dorothy, so maybe that's why the line resonates for me. That makes sense. Yeah. I also skipped over a scene briefly. It's not that important, but I want to make the connection. There's that moment where you said I had to write down who the fuck Patty was because we see Sarah and her walking down Main Street. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a great deal of the walking down Main Street in Halloween H2O. Oh, I can see that. I can see that for sure. I mean, I guess also you could say it's trying to do what, uh, I mean, it's not Main Street, but do what the the girls walking down this the neighborhood street talking in the original Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, this is your, because this is when you find out that, because Patty's dating Hollis, who's your favorite character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's just teasing Sarah, like, you got two dicks, man. Enjoy <laughs> it. <laughs> I do love that they're all pretty sexually progressive in this. Again, they are adults, so they're not going to yeah. be repressed in that way. But it's very much like, girl, you've got two dicks. What are you complaining about? Yeah, but sometimes I think about adults in 1981, and I'm like, so they were basically Mormons, right? <laughs> yes, 80s were just Mormons. Everyone was Mormon. <laughs> it's 40 years ago. Oh my god, no. So yeah. So basically, the end of Friday comes as these kids in the bar decide that they are going to hold their own party in the mine. And then we see the cranky barkeep who decides he's going to pull a prank and show these kids a lesson <laughs> for daring to go against this. And then he is just killed. Um, but this scene is really fun. It goes on for way too long. Basically, it's like a Scooby-Doo gag. He strings uh-huh. up a miner suit at the door. So when you open it, the pickaxe is going to come up by a string. Yeah. A- dangerous b he does it like four times yeah he's so pleased with himself well he's so you know, he walks away and he's giggling and he stops and he like he goes <laughs> and he turns because he just has to do it again to see what it does mm-hmm. <laughs> does it still work Ooh. oh my god it's gonna be so good but like oops actually it's the real miner and he gets the pickaxe up his chin coming out of his eye that pops out his eyeball and it's fantastic mm-hmm. it's the death that gets uh reserved for tom atkins in the remake yes and i do remember that because that, that's again that, that's your 3d effect you betcha. <laughs> all right so it's time for the big day saturday february 14 which is the last half of the movie this is actually around the 40 45 minute mark yeah i was gonna say i still have like a full page of okay so they're setting up for the secret party chief newbie gets another valentine you didn't stop the party (laughs) no this is the one where it's like you expect it's going to be the note except it's actually a box of chocolates from mabel and you're just like oh Oh, fuck right right And then he gets the other one which is like you didn't stop the party it's like oh subversion (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, because he we get the chocolates. Then super cute guy Dave goes and gets boiled in the in the the wiener pot, and then we get the you didn't stop the party. Correct. Yes, I do love that he references the fact that he's got the munchies, and then he's attracted to just a giant pot of, of hot dog wieners. Hot dog wieners. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm a fan of incorporating hot dog water into any piece of cinema. <laughs> People who have seen Scooby Doo Mystery Incorporated will know that one of the best characters on that show is named Hot Dog Water, and she is voiced by Linda Cardellini from the Scooby-Doo movies. Mm-hmm. See previous episode. <laughs> hot dog water. Yes. But yeah, this guy, uh, his, his head smells like hot dog water and his heart... Okay, again, logical inconsistency. He gets killed. No one sees this minor in here. Okay. Yeah. He then has time to remove this guy's heart, put it in the pot, and then clean up the blood, which mm-hmm. it would have been gushing because it's the heart, yeah. and then place this guy's body in the fridge with no one noticing. <laughs> Correct. And they're all right outside making setting up the party or taking down the party or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, what's the problem? What that, what is no what problem. is your issue with this? <laughs> no, it all it all tracks. It all makes sense. Uh yes. And uh folks who feel like, hey, have I seen someone get their face put into boiling hot water? Yes, you have in Sleepaway Camp, which is two years after this film. There you go. Is that water or is it like fry oil? Because I feel like there's a fry oil scene somewhere too. I don't know, whatever. One of them. (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) So as they're getting ready for this party, this is where our love triangle boils over. This is a very interesting scene, if only for its sexual politics, because both men just talk about laying claim to Sarah, and she's right there. But then she actually says, I'm right here. No, I, I wrote this down. Axel speaks for her. Sarah goes, do you mind? I have my own mouth. Thank you. (laughs) And I was like, oh, good for this movie for doing that. And then literally the second she says that, then TJ speaks for her. And (laughs) and she's like, y'all can shut the fuck up and get out. I am not either one of you people's objects. (laughs) Yeah. And she leaves. And then these two, like, walking penises get into this big (laughs) fight. And you're just like, oh, my God. You're so immature and stupid. And also you want to fuck each other. It's great. I love it. Yeah, this actually did work for me, um, even though it's stupid. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you're like, cool, I don't need 15 other characters. I need like these three and then Hollis and Howard and Patty. Yep. That's all you need for this movie. I don't know why they have so many extra characters. I mean, okay, so we're now coming into Sylvia's death scene. Sylvia is a character who I do not know before this scene. No. Who is this? And then it's like, wait, why are we following her and this guy, John? And it would be something if John were someone we knew, too. Like, Mm -hmm. if, oh, okay, one of them. But we don't know either one of these people. And so that's fine because Sylvia is about to get killed in a great set piece. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just like, I don't know. Like, I feel like because Patty's death at the end is kind of such like a wet fart noise of, a, of like a final death. Because it really is like the last death in the film. Mm-hmm. I almost wish that, yeah, this is like a Patty Hollow situation. But I, I guess maybe they're like, well, no one wants to see the chubby guy have sex. Oh. I don't think that. But I can see a studio saying that. Yeah, I could very easily accept if somebody came to us and said, oh, this wasn't really planned. We just got a studio note that said we need more deaths please introduce extra characters and kill them off. Yeah. Like the set piece is great, but these characters come out of nowhere and they feel like they're here just so that Sylvia can die. Yeah. I mean, this I think the body count for this movie is like 12 people, which again is a lot. That's not insignificant. Yeah. No, but like remove two and put someone we know in this scene, you know? Mm-hmm. 
because even Dave, I was like, have we met Dave before? Like they're talking no. about how he shaved his face. And I'm like, is it just that he shaved and I don't recognize him from a previous scene? I don't think so. Okay, so yeah, if you have Dave be John, and so we remove Dave's death scene, Dave, like, we at least meet him saying, oh, he's trying to get out of town, because that's what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, cool, he's with Sylvia, maybe they're having goodbye sex before he leaves, you sure, know? Sure, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of other ways you could have played this where you did not have to just randomly insert characters to kill them. <laughs> yeah, but nevertheless, we get this scene. So yeah, they want beer, so John goes to get beers, and while this happens... Yeah. I love that you're cueing me, but I do just want to red flag this. If you're making out with somebody and they pause and ask you to go get beer, maybe read that as a I don't want to have sex with you. Oh, I think she very much wants to have sex. But like, if I'm having sex with someone, I want to be having the sex with them. I don't want to pause so I can go get beer. Like, let's fuck and then we'll go and get the beer. Also, if you're drinking beer, you're gonna have to pee like two seconds later. I mean, you are obligated to say Moosehead beer, drink it all the time in this movie. So. <laughs> it's a beer that's local to the areas, which is why all of them drink it. Like, it actually does make sense. But people love to glom on to like, what the fuck? They're all drinking Moosehead beer all the fucking time. Well, again, it would have made sense like in Halloween if it was they had just had sex. And then she was like, cool, go get us some beers. That's yes. exactly what happens in Halloween. Exactly. And maybe this is them saying like, we're going to do the Halloween thing, but not the Halloween thing. But not the Halloween. It's different enough, guys. <laughs> Rip off of Halloween? What? No, it's totally different. What? We've never seen Halloween. That's an American film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So she sends John away and then she's just kind of laying there checking this out. And it's hard to oversell just how visually well done this sequence is, considering that all that's happening is that she is getting frightened by dropping minor costumes around her. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, we covered Scream 3. There's a scene where Jenny McCarthy's in the costume room with all the Scream, like the ghost face costumes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we lamented. We were like, oh, I wish they, like, they did something more with this. Like, it's a really cool idea, but they just kind of like don't do anything with it. Yes. This is what I wanted from that scene. Right? Like, this is so, again, just a bunch of hanging minor outfits falling on her. Mm-hmm. And you're right. The way it's shot, like, I don't even know how you would shoot this. But it, it's done in such a way where it is exciting and thrilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course... It ultimately ends with the minor being right in front of her. He just picks her up and carries her over. By the head! By the head! By the head, yeah. Like, super strong. Axel, I guess, has some rage issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he picks her up, he carries her over to the shower system, like a sprinkler in a way, and he just jams her head onto yeah. this. Yeah. I know a lot of people say, oh, this feels like a bit of a homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the meat hook. I don't ever really see it that way, but I I can see it. I just love it. Like, if you're not watching the gore cut, all you see is her, like, start to go onto it. And then later on, you'll see her body hanging there. If you get the gore cut, you actually see bloody red water coming out of her mouth from the spout. So actually, so you're really just seeing water. You do see water come out of the spout. Okay. There was originally supposed to be a shot of um, the water turning blood red, Mm -hmm. um, but apparently the film footage had deteriorated over the years, which is why they couldn't add it to the gore cut. Okay. 
So I've read that story and then imagined it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, again, like, because he does turn on the water, and there is, like, there is an angle where you can see water coming. I think it's when John finds her, and so it's like, the camera's behind her head, right. and you see water coming out, but it's not, it's just clear water. It's not, like, bloody water coming out of her mouth, which okay. that would have been what we were missing from this film. Yeah. I wish that the edit here was just a little bit tighter, because we hold on Rob Stein, who plays John. We hold on his face as he stares at her for too long, and yeah. he is not a good enough actor to convey the emotion necessary here i agree it's also a weird editing trick too because we get this and then we get like a couple scenes of the kids going to the mines they get on the mining cart Mm -hmm. michael and harriet go off to go fuck yeah and then we have the finding of dave's body um the blonde who's not sarah finds dave's body and that's when John runs in to be like, oh my god, Sylvie is dead. I think it was too much of a gap. Yeah, like this. where has he been? Because he's still at the top of the mine. Like he's not that far away from the party at this point. If he was really freaking out, he would have gotten back there. I think before the others would have even had time to get onto this mine cart ride. I agree, which is why I think with editing, I think you should have had the kids go in the mine cart before Sylvia's death scene. Agreed. Yeah, strong agreed. Mm-hmm. So Howard, Hollis, Patty, Sarah... Mike and his girlfriend, Harriet, are down in the mines. (laughs) So many fucking people. I know. (laughs) And again, Howard is the funny one. Hollis is the one that I love with the glasses. Patty is his girlfriend. She's got the kind of like auburn hair. Sarah's obviously our final girl. Mike and Harriet are the two that, you know, we haven't really talked too much about. No, we do not know them at all. And I think had we gotten to maybe see their sex scene and death scene, that it would leave a bigger mark. But as it stands, we see them decide to go fuck, Mm -hmm. and then we see their corpses. Yeah, yeah. And this is the one where you really do feel that editing, because I remembered that they died, and I knew that it was one of the scenes that was really affected because they die in a sexually compromised situation. Yeah, so the MPA rejected, they did film it. The Mm -hmm. MPA rejected the scene outright, and it was completely cut from the film unlike other murder sequences which which were just cut down and this footage cannot it it does not exist anymore apparently but i find it so interesting because friday the 13th part 2 also features a couple fucking before they get impaled by a spear by jason Mm -hmm. yes it's jeff and sandra but the only reason that one was cut is because the actress in that film was revealed to have lied about her age and she was actually 17 in the film showing her titties oops yeah that's not good it was like a real Brent Corrigan situation. <laughs> oh my. Oh, Brent Corrigan. <laughs> yes, and shout out to Kill by Kill because I'm sure that they have referenced this as a get bunked situation. So when two people get impaled by a single object. Yes, get bunked. Yep. Rest in peace, Mike and Harriet. Well, and this would have been a cool death too because it's a big ass fucking drill. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it looked nasty. Mm hmm. So there's there's actually quite a lot of intercutting that's going on at this point. So yeah, yeah we do have people running back up to what the party goers know. So they all drive away. <laughs> We've got Chief Newbie eventually getting alerted, but he's also waiting for this call from the sanitarium to find out whether or not Harry Warden is actually still there. Everybody's getting separated down in the tunnels, and we don't know where TJ or Axel is at this point. Well, I think though we're about to be at the point where TJ comes down, finds everyone, and says, dude, people are dead. Harry Warden's down here. we got to get out. And at this point, there's about 20 minutes left of the film. 
Yes, but right before that happens, we have to talk about Hollis's death because he's the one who discovers the get bunked, and then he is killed with a nail gun. Well, no, no, no. So, so it's after actually because TJ comes down, tells them they all run away, but Hollis is like, "No, I have to go get Michael and Harriet or whatever the fuck because they don't know." Right, 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 right. Yes. And yes, this death is great because it takes, what, three nails to get him down? And then he still doesn't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he still manages to get back to the group, which is deeply upsetting. So I know that one of the qualms that people who don't love this film have is that they find Patty annoying because she cries and she's not able to climb a ladder. And I get that it's frustrating when you see characters not becoming final girls and picking up your phallic objects and becoming Linda Hamilton. But I actually really respect this film for letting Patty fucking grieve. No, I agree. Okay, so (laughs) this might be a tiny tangent, but like we just, you know, binge the entire Wrong Turn franchise. (laughs) And um, go listen to our Patreon mini so y'all because we rank them all. (laughs) yes we do i remember reading a review for the first film when it came out and and the review was complaining so much about emmanuel shrieky's character yeah yeah Mm -hmm. because she witnesses her boyfriend get killed and she basically up until the time she dies spoiler alert she's just like i can't oh my god it's so hard my boyfriend my fiance's dead and i'm like you know what fuck it i get it i understand Mm -hmm. it's nice to see i get it like she's super helpless it's frustrating because she doesn't want to do anything but i'm also kind of like well she just saw the love of her life and her entire future that she had planned go away exactly that's what this is with patty too so it's kind of this defeated like why even fucking try anymore like i might as well just die Mm mm-hmm you can see her shutting down when she's crouching over Hollis's body. I love this scene where, I mean, I don't love violence against women, but I think it's really telling about how Sarah is handling the situation where she's like, I'm not willing to leave my friend, but also I can't just let her cry over her dead boyfriend's body. So she ends up having to slap her. And, you know, part of this is, yes, Sarah is obviously our final girl. She's not the most assertive final girl, but she actually does have a good sense of agency. But I love that she is like, Patty, you are my best friend. I'm not leaving without you. I will drag you out of here if I need to. Yeah, I don't find anything about Sarah particularly memorable. But on on the flip side, I don't find her forgettable, if that makes sense. She's like firmly middle of the road for me. Right. Yeah. Like if you're ranking final girl, she's not going to make the list. But also she's not. She's not going to make the worst. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just as a brief shout out, because I am so gay this episode, I fucking love her dress. And it's very obvious that you got, yes, like your final girl dressed in this white gown. But I also love how fucking dirty it gets over the course of their time in the mines. Like these oh, people yeah. get messy. I li- no, I, I like that too. I mean, the, granted, they're probably just running off of the, the paint that was painted on these rocks to, <laughs> to make them dirty again. But <laughs> Just crank the methane up a little bit and rub your face on a wall. Again, the thought that, like, literally if they did something wrong, that this mine would have blown up with them filming inside of it, like, that is insane to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the, the strict conditions of how long they were allowed down there before the methane would pile up, where mm-hmm. it was like, nope, everybody's got to leave, shooting day's over. Yeah, party, party. Ah, good times, yeah. At this point, we're basically down. We don't know where Howard is, but TJ has arrived. So it's him and Sarah and Patty, and then they run into Axel... Okay, so Howard leaves them, Patty's distraught, Axel finds Sarah and Patty and helps them run out. No one knows where TJ is. Oh, no, wait, they find him. Now we have this ladder climbing set piece. (laughs) 
Yes. I do also love that Axel just whacks TJ with this giant wooden beam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. Well, it's like a Scooby-Doo thing again, where it's like, oh, one character's hiding around the corner with like a weapon to get mm-hmm. the killer. But oops, it's actually another character and they whack them over the head with it. Yeah. And then TJ gets mad. Like, well, what did you do that for? It's like, we're down here with a killer. Yeah, no, yeah. You're also in a mining outfit right now. <laughs> what do you think I was going to do? Exactly. Yeah, so they get to this elevator. The mechanics are fucked, so they're going to have to climb. And they start to go up. Patty just repeatedly keeps panicking, but Sarah is slowly pushing her along. And then we get this great moment where it's like, hey, have you forgotten that Howard hasn't been around for a little while? <laughs> Boom, his corpse just drops into view. And I had completely forgotten about this part of the gore cut. Mm-hmm. So he has died by strangulation, presumably, but his neck has been really badly cut. And he just gets decapitated in the impact right yeah. in front of well, them. Well, it's interesting that you brought up Suspiria earlier with the chest cavity, because this actually reminds me of the opening kill again in Suspiria, where uh. she gets hanged. But in this one, they're like, we're going to go one step further, and the head's going to sever when the, when the rope snaps. Yeah. It's really good. (laughs) And then we get that shot of the headless body just, like, hitting the ground. Yes. I didn't mention this earlier when we were going into the mines, but there's actually one really good shot when the camera's positioned on the elevator as it goes down into the mine, but it just Mm -hmm. pointed up. So it's like you're just looking up as this elevator goes down to really show you how deep in the mines they all are. And I think that's a really Mm -hmm. good way to establish that. Yeah. Again, they're really trying to maximize what they've got to work with and it's like this isn't a set we are showing you just how big and intimidating and dark this mine is yeah for sure absolutely yeah, yeah. so now we're now we're just down to uh the three lovers and patty mm-hmm. yes poor patty <laughs> poor <Yeah>. patty <laughs> sarah's over here with two dicks and patty's got none patty's got none but it's okay because she is not long for this world so They realize that because Howard's body fell from above, they don't really know where Harry Warden is. So they can't assume he's not already above them. So they go back down into the mine. (laughs) And at this point, Axel says, well, let's take a shortcut. We'll get to the rail cars and that's how we'll get out. So they're like, cool. Axel is then immediately dispatched. He disappears into a body of water. And then TJ also disappears. (sighs) So we're just left with the girls. (laughs) This body of water thing is the stupidest fucking thing. Like, they, we keep showing, air, seeing air bubbles come out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so we're to presume that he just, oops, fell in the water and then sank to the bottom. Well, I think you're meant to assume that he was hit by Harry Warden and then he went into the water, but they don't have time to get him. Okay, well, I did not get that. <laughs> I mean, it's a Roman and Scream 3 thing where it's like, oops, I gotta fake my own death. It really is. And again, the remake tries to find a way around this, but that doesn't work either. No. It's tough to do the whodunit slasher thing because you have to presumably have the killer with the group of people for most of the time or else people will just be like oh well it's obviously trace because we haven't seen him and people keep dying (laughs) so axel has to find a way to do this but it's really hard logically to say okay well how do i remove myself from this equation i'm also imagining axel constantly changing in and out of this minor outfit for this entirety of the climax like (laughs) oh yeah that's why i said don't think about the logistics because it's like when would he have time how is he stashing these outfits all over the mine it's like a video game he's gonna have like a couple different save rooms stashed around the mine with a different minor outfit in each one so we can run in put it on okay oh killed that person cool let me run in get out of this which again i imagine the time it takes to put this thing on and take this thing off it's just the funniest fucking idea 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And because I got absolutely no credit for the joke that I made two weeks ago, I'm just going to make it again. It's basically Among Us where he's just got like secret mind shafts where he can like <laughs> pop in, grab an outfit, travel <laughs> through the vent, kill someone. <laughs> I don't even remember you saying that. So I'm acknowledging this joke now. <laughs> I'll accept it. <laughs> oh, my God. So we're down to the two girls, but not really because Patty gets a pickaxe pretty quickly. I mean, it's a replication of the scene earlier with TJ and Axel, but instead this time it's actually the killer. Well, it's actually Axel killing yeah. someone. Yeah, she gets axed in the gut. It is disappointing that this is kind of the last big moment before our climax because Patty is one of the characters we've gotten to know pretty well and her death doesn't carry a lot of weight like we don't see sarah grieving for her because sarah's like uh peace out i gotta go i'm gonna run i wonder if it's just like oh there's five minutes left of this movie let's pick it up and get to this ending very much so yeah just get rid of patty because we've got to get to the end yeah i mean again do you have a set piece can you have a set piece here i don't know i don't know yeah I mean, you can. To be honest, I remember the first time I saw this, I thought Patty was going to live. I didn't think they were going to kill her. Yeah, no, I'm the same. So TJ shows back up. He is bleeding from the head, but he and Sarah make a run for it. And we see that Newbie and the mayor and the rescuers have started to make their way in. And they are coming down the rail cart line. So we know that they're going to meet up fairly quickly. But first we have to get this fun as fuck rail car battle. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. The second they got on there, I was like, fuck yeah, let's do this shit. This yes. is the set piece. It's really quite good considering how simple it is. It's just a moving rail car and they are constantly having to climb forward because Harry Warden keeps swinging that fucking pickaxe at them. Yup, yup, yup. I do wish that Sarah was just a little bit more helpful here. She kind of just stands behind TJ for most of this. Although there is one part where he's got a shovel that he's using to ward off the attacks and he ends up losing it and it falls right near her. And then they fall off the rail car and Sarah hops off and she just kind of gives the shovel back to him. And this was really the 2021 version of me saying, Sarah, fucking swing it. You don't have to give it to the man. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I hear you with this. So they end up in this abandoned danger section. The walls and the ceiling look very uh, <laughs> not safe. We'll put it that way. So they are really doing a number on it. And it looks like the whole thing's about to cave in. And at one point when Harry Warden looks like he's about to strike a killing blow, Sarah manages to rip off the mask. And of course, it is Axel. And we get this flashback. Yep, so it turns out Axel's father was one of the supervisors the day the mine exploded in 1960, and mm -hmm. Axel witnessed Harry Warden kill his father. Yes. And it drove him insane. And we have, I think, the sheriff say, oh yeah, that's what happened. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. This character that we've known, who's one of the protagonists of this film, becoming the antagonist, has suffered this major trauma from the event we've already seen a flashback from. Yep. And no one felt the need to mention, oh yeah, that was Axel's dad. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can forgive a lot of things. The fact that this was never mentioned once before this point is mind-boggling to me. Like, this is kind of my, what? Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a very flimsy motivation, which is what gets me. This could have been fine, but yeah, they would have had to do more work around it. That's not how psychology works. Mm -hmm. There's lots of victims of trauma who survive and don't go on to become serial killers. 
it's too flimsy. I almost expected it to be like, this is Harry Warden's secret son. That would have worked a little bit better or something. I think because, you know, they said, oh, we didn't tell the actors ahead of time. We've had this discussion. I'm just wondering if they had that backstory already. They had all the characters' names in a hat, and they were like, pick a name. (laughs) And that person's going to be the one that gets the backstory. We filmed multiple endings. It could have been TJ. It could have been Hollis. It could have been Howard. I almost think, like, okay, what if... So we know TJ is the mayor's son. What if, like, Mm -hmm. the sheriff... What if the sheriff's son was one of the the supervisors, you know? Well, I guess that wouldn't have made sense. It was 20 years ago. <laughs> but I don't know. So, or, I, something. But yeah, this 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 is dumb. <laughs> yeah, it's just unsatisfying, right? And yeah. it's very quick. It feels very shoehorned in. And you're like, okay, I guess. And then we're just moving on because we have to move on. So Yep. Uh, so the ceiling collapses, but Sarah and TJ manage to make it out. They assume that Axel is dead until one of the rescuers notices that his hand is moving. So Sarah runs back in because she needs to see Axel, which again, I applaud this film because whether we believe Sarah has a lot of feelings for Axel, she was still porking him for a substantial period of time while TJ was away. So it makes sense that she wants to see if he is still alive. And she touches him and he grabs her by the wrist and she immediately regrets that decision. So she freaks out. It's a great little scare, though. (laughs) It is good. Yeah. We cut and we see it from the other perspective. We don't actually see Axel's face, but we see the other hand sawing through the hand that's holding on to Sarah. And then she pulls it out. So she's just got this dismembered hand touching her. And then we see TJ, as you said, running away into the gloom with a laugh and a little nursery rhyme. It's so creepy. And it just fades to black. And then we get the credits. Like, that is the end of this movie. It's like, oh, did you want to know what happens to TJ and Sarah? Too fucking bad. I mean, again, it's it's just like Black Christmas. It's just like the end of Halloween. Like We're done. What more do you need? But, like, yeah, it, it, it works. This ending really works for me. Apparently the guy, uh, Mahalka, was actually trying to get a sequel made in the early 2000s. Sure. And Paramount shut him down because they were like, no, the first one didn't make enough money, you know, Ugh. 20-something years ago. And then we get the Even though instead. literally all we're doing right now are remakes of not even as well-known films, I would argue. Yeah. No, Absolutely. I mean, again, this would have been around the time Texas Chainsaw Massacre hit. Because the the remake was 2009, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre was 03. Mm -hmm. So I think that's around the time when this was happening. Yeah, the remake of this is coming out at the end of the remake cycle. And I would argue it's almost hurt by that because it feels like an afterthought compared to all the earlier ones. I checked. So yeah, it it went on to make $52 million domestically, like $100 worldwide, and the 3D sales really helped it. But again, this is a couple months before Sorority Row comes out in tanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And that's basically the end of a lot of slashers, but also the remakes. The remakes for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's my bloody Valentine, Joe. What are, mm-hmm. what are your, I mean, we, we know what your thoughts are. You fucking love it. I really like this film. I think part of it is that the characters are a little bit more mature, so they don't have to do all the stuff that we see with kids who can't have sex and they're not allowed out after dark and that kind of thing. On this rewatch in particular, I did notice that I felt some of the awkwardness of the cutting back and forth between things and certain scenes just not playing as organically. Like we mentioned, you know, oh, it would have been better to have had this happen before that and so on. Right. I think overall, I find... 
Harry Warden and the minor character quite memorable. I love the authenticity of this mine. And yeah, I mean, a bit of a secret queer reading with TJ and Axel. I think it goes down smooth. I agree. I mean, this is a three-star film for me. I think it's totally fine. I, I love the aesthetic of the mines. I do appreciate that it's adults. Mm-hmm. I do feel that even at the 93 minutes we're watching, I do feel like the pacing lags a bit, although I right. couldn't tell you where. Okay. But no, I mean, I, I'm glad that I own it. I do right. think it's better than some slashers that I've seen. It's oh, just God, kind of yeah. like, just slightly better than okay for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're not going to regret throwing this on, but it's not going to be a go-to favorite. Yeah, like if someone's like, oh, what's a really good classic slasher? I'm, I mean, again, there's other ones. I mean, but, but again, I would recommend this before Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> and cue the hate mail. Oh my god. But yeah, okay, well that's that, so let's wrap this up, Joe. Alright. Um. So yeah, before we announce that we're covering next week... If you want to get in touch with us, you can re- reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group or like our page. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Oh, we also have a letterbox now, so go follow us there to keep up with all of our episodes. Woo-hoo. If you would like even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Uh, this month, so again, we have already turned out our religious horror minisode as well as our ranking of the Wrong Turn franchise, but coming up, we've got episodes on St. Maud and Willy's Wonderland, and of course, in a couple days, as we've already mentioned multiple times this episode, our audio commentary on 2009's My Bloody Valentine remake. Yeah. Joe, what are we covering next week? Well, Trace, we're going to do actually a found footage film. Very excited. Queer director, we're talking about Adam Robitel's The Taking of Deborah Logan. Mm-hmm. This is an episode we released on our Patreon feed last year, and we are releasing it to the masses to give you all a taste of what you're missing out on. But yeah, so uh, please tune in for that next week, and uh, the week after that is my birthday pick, so stay tuned for that as well. Oh, Jesus. I'm going to keep teasing. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, it's no fun. How come you get multiple weeks of teasing yours, and I only got one? For the record, you could have done that throughout all of January. Been like, oh my god, we're doing our threes. Also, the first week of February is my birthday pick, y'all. Stay tuned. Oh god. Do you know how <laughs> annoying that sounds? Hint, it's how annoying you sound. I think I sound wonderful. Listeners, let us know if it's annoying or not. And No, they have other homework. <laughs> you have so much homework for this. Anyway, we can cross out my bloody valentine. Yes, and cross out horror queers. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>